Last week in our first message, we established a couple of things. We, we reminded ourselves that the Spirit is God Almighty, that He's God and that He's worthy of our reflection and, and our devotion and our study just because of who He is apart from what He gives us. But we also established that the, the Spirit gives us an amazing thing, right? Remember the Grudem quote for those of you who are here? Essentially, we said that the Holy Spirit is given to us to manifest, to make active God's actual presence and power in our lives so that we can actually experience God's presence and power and have a real relationship with Him. So what we want to do now over the next few weeks is talk about how we experience the Holy Spirit. What does it look like to see him in our lives? How do we hear him, see him, follow him? What should we expect from his presence and power? And how can we cultivate a deeper experience of him? Today, we're going to talk about the most foundational and the most crucial way that we experience the Holy Spirit. And that is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you remember the Wizard of Oz? Anybody remember the Wizard of Oz? Yeah, there's a good number of you guys do. Sam, you remember? So, in the Wizard of Oz, Dorothy goes through a lot of trouble to get back home. She goes through Flying Monkeys, The Wicked Witch, which is the most terrifying movie thing I've ever seen. And really use caution. I'm serious if you show your kids that movie. I've never forgotten that woman's face. Um, She goes through poppies that almost kill her. The witch tries to drug her to death and all her friends. Um, it's, It's a really, really hard time for Dorothy in Oz. And all this time, she's on a journey to recover what she treasures most, her family, her relationship, her most important relationships. She wants to get back home to the people she loves. And at the end, Glenda the Good Witch tells her, you've had the power all along. Remember, she had the shoes, right? The whole time, the whole two hours, all this horror, she had the shoes. Like, that's not right. Now, at first, those slippers were pretty special. She, it was a big deal to get them. And, but over time, the movie puts them to sleep. They kind of fall in the backdrop. Every once in a while, the witch will show up. I want those slippers. But most of the time, you're not thinking about the slippers at all. You're thinking about the flying monkeys, right? But could you imagine how different her time in Oz would have been if she had known from the beginning the power that was right there with her from the very beginning? If she had really understood it, what difference it would have made in her time in Oz. It would have been a much much more comforting, much richer, much more hopeful time in Oz. And that's what we have in the gospel. We can so easily miss what the gospel provides us. We can so easily set it aside and let it to fall in the backdrop because we've heard it so much. It can be tempting when talking about the Holy Spirit to want to focus on what Jay Call called in men's meeting the other day, the fireworks. And I don't mean to say fireworks in a, in a pejorative manner, and neither did he. Healings and tongues and prophecies about the future, they're gifts from God, and they're amazing. And we want the church to experience more of that. And we're going to talk about those things in this series. I, by God's grace, I promise you, Lord willing, we will. But in my understanding of the scriptures, the most important aspect of the Holy Spirit, the the what the New Testament says about experiencing the Holy Spirit falls into areas that we're much more familiar with. Things like seeing and believing and savoring Jesus Christ and experiencing his love in us and through us. And because that kind of experience with the Holy Spirit, it's not as dramatic on paper. We can minimize it. We can, we can put it to the side, sort of. And that can lead to... to to deficiencies all the way to massive destruction. 
in a church family, in a home, in a marriage. Like Dorothy, we can miss the power that's right in front of us, that's been given to us to treasure and steward the whole time. And so today we're going to talk about Jesus Christ and his connection in the gospel to the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't know of any place in the Bible that, that gives a better, a better clinic on what the connection is between the Holy Spirit and the gospel than the book of Galatians. The Reformers talked about the book of Galatians really in terms of the doctrine of justification. And it is really about that. But it is also largely about the Holy Spirit. And so we're going to look at the connection between the gospel and the Holy Spirit in Galatians. Let's, let's have some backdrop first. Central problem in Galatians. If you guys might have forgotten. The church was being led astray in the gospel of salvation by these people who were coming and telling them, it's not enough to trust in Christ and depend on him for your forgiveness. It's not enough to depend on Christ as your righteousness before God. You also have to obey the law. You have to earn your salvation. You have to believe in Jesus and you have to perform for God and earn your salvation. And in response to this, in the most tactful way possible, Paul goes crazy. <laughs> I, I mean, he is not, not happy with the situation at all. And he says some of his most heavy-duty criticisms in the book that you'll ever find in the Bible. I, I don't think there's a more sobering letter uh, in the Bible than the letter of Galatians, at least to the churches. And Paul makes an appeal to them all throughout the book. But in chapter 3, he makes a very specific kind of appeal that's really important for our series. So I want you to listen to me as I speak these words in chapter 3, verse 1 through 6, as Paul appeals to these Galatians in a very specific way. And see if you can figure out what the specific way is. I think you'll be able to do it. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain if indeed it it was in vain Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God, believed God, believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Paul is trying to convince this church of the truth that is in Jesus Christ, that he gives a full and complete salvation to those he saves, that it is all on him to save and not on you to save, that he can be trusted and depended on to save fully, completely, and finally. But notice what he appeals to. He appeals to their experience. 
But listen, he doesn't even appeal in their experience to do changed, changed lives. He appeals to their experience of a person. The Holy Spirit in them, working in them. When we're saved or we hear a testimony of salvation, we might talk about how we left sin behind and began to love God and love people in ways we never could before. That's how I would often articulate my salvation experience when I was converted. And Paul would say to us today, do you know what that really is? Rather, he'd say it isn't a that at all. It's a who. You received a person. You received the Holy Spirit. You began to live by the power of the Holy Spirit. You were supplied by God, not simply with new heart, new attitude. You were given his very Holy Spirit. You believed the promise of God concerning Jesus. You didn't ask for the Holy Spirit. You trusted in Jesus. And as a consequence, as a byproduct, he sent the spirit of his son into your heart. The spirit, Paul says, that cries out, Abba, Father. And he says, are you now, instead of all that, being perfected by the flesh? You started down this journey of the Christian life with the Holy Spirit, his power. As a result of believing in Jesus Christ and his salvation. And now you're no longer believing in Jesus Christ and his salvation. And as a consequence, you're no longer experiencing the Holy Spirit and his power. Do you see that? You started out believing in Jesus Christ and his salvation, his gospel. And you experienced the power of the Holy Spirit. Now you're giving up on Jesus and his gospel. And you're seeing the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit smothered and dry up among you. He says, what has happened to all your joy? It's gone. Watch out. You guys are devouring each other. He says. The Holy Spirit is so fundamental to what the gospel brings us. That for Paul, it's impossible in this book to separate the Holy Spirit from the goal of the gospel. If we look at verse 10 through, thir- through 14, just for time, go through the bottom part of that, starting in verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Why did he do that? Verse 14 of chapter 3. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. Now stop there. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law so that we might receive the blessing, this promise of Abraham. Remember when God told Abraham, through you all the nations will be blessed. Right? And we know that comes through Jesus. But what's so amazing here is Paul says that blessing that comes through Jesus, go on. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. He articulates the blessing of Abraham as the Holy Spirit being given To all nations, so that all can be sons of God, daughters of God, crying out, Abba, Father, through the Spirit of Jesus Christ. 
And he says, now, if you rely on yourself, if you rely on your performance to be right with God, if you rely on your ability to not stand condemned before him, you will always fail. You will always be cursed because you can never live up to God's holy standards. But when you rely on Christ, when you rely on him and depend on him to take the curse you deserve for you, then my spirit comes to you. My spirit floods your life. And that was my experience in 1992. I grew up Catholic. I knew God's holiness. I knew the laws of God. I knew about getting drunk and being a jerk and being selfish. I knew about impurity and sexual immorality. None of those things could change what I was doing in my life. Giving myself to those things and those pursuits. And I knew the condemnation of God, that I was under God's wrath. He, in his mercy, allowed me to see that. And then one day he whispered into my heart, Albert, I've put all of your sins, past, present, and future, on my son. All of them. And he allowed me with the eyes of my heart to see the cross of Jesus Christ publicly portrayed to my soul. And all my sins were upon Jesus. Past, present, and future. The most glorious of facts. And in that moment, the doors were blown off my life. Not everybody's conversion story is, is super dramatic. or some, some of us don't even know exactly. Some of us are very young when we come to Christ. But we can say today, I love Jesus. I believe in him. And I, I'm following him. Not perfectly. Your story doesn't have to be like mine. But, but that's what happens. We believe in Jesus and we receive the Spirit. But when we let go of Jesus, when we minimize the salvation we have in Jesus, when we say the gospel is for kids, when we say that we got to move on to, to deeper things, we got to just focus on discipline and gutting it out, and then and we do what Paul says in Galatians 4, verse 4 through 5 and 6. Let's take verse 4. You have severed. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Now, I'm not worried about anybody in here saying, I don't need Jesus to save me. I'm saved by Jesus and by what I do. I think most of us would, would understand that's, that's not the truth. But in, in smaller ways, in, in less scandalous ways, we can ignore and dismiss our need. To hold on to the truth that we are fully forgiven in Jesus. And that we are fully made righteous in Christ. And when we do that, we dampen the Spirit's power in us and through us. We can't have it both ways. We can't live a performance-based Christianity where, where I have to earn my way before God and expect a fervent, powerful relationship with the Holy Spirit. Because when I accent my performance as either explicitly or subtly, in big ways or little ways, when I begin to focus on my performance and, and, and if I'm making myself right with God and am I doing the right things, when that becomes central instead of Jesus Christ, I'm pouring water all over the Holy Spirit. 
But when I come back to the gospel, not, not ignore my sin, but when I say, yes, Lord, please, Lord, help me with my sin, and, and I see it, but I'm going to stand with gutsy faith and say that you still forgive me. You are still my righteousness. You are still my hope. I'm pouring gasoline on the fire of the Holy Spirit. I'm fanning him into flame. I'm making more space in the fireplace for his power to blaze. So what does this look like? What does it mean to trust Christ alone for salvation and yet experience the power of the Holy Spirit? Well, let's move to the next couple of verses. I'm trying to be careful about time here. Paul says, instead of trusting in the law, he says in verse 5, through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only this, only this, faith working through love. I want to talk about faith working through love. What is faith working through love? I see in this passage, faith working through love, in this phrase, both Jesus and the Spirit in view. On the one hand, faith is to keep trusting in Jesus and not ourselves, not our good performance for the perfection we don't have yet. We trust that Jesus Christ has attained that for us. Paul says we wait for righteousness. He's not talking about the righteousness we have when we're declared forgiven. He's talking about when we're perfect. He says we wait for it through the Spirit. And he says that looks like faith working through love. And so we have faith in Jesus and what he's done, and that facilitates the engenderment of a love in us, the fanning into flame of a love in us for God and for people. Now, I saw this this week in my own life as I struggled with a sin that I'll just call the sin of really liking Roger Federer. And I know I talk about this every couple of weeks lately, but it's, I mean, you guys laugh and it is funny, but, but it's a real thing to me. I, I can't explain all the ins and outs of it, but I can find myself when, after five years of waiting, Roger Federer wins a Grand Slam and beats Rafael Nadal, his arch nemesis, and he, he beats four top ten players and three of those are in five sets, and he's been injured for six months. I mean, you know what I mean? Aren't you now beginning to lose sight of the truth of the universe because this, this glorious guy and the athletic and right so i just found myself really consumed with that story this week in a pretty radical way and i found myself realizing that i care about it too much i i need to care about my kids more i need to care about my wife more i need to care about the duties i have before you more and i'm drawn away by this it's fine it's great right athleticism and sports it's a gift but we can od on it right anything that God gives us a gift. We can, and then it doesn't become such a great thing anymore in our lives. And I went through this process over 24 hours of just feeling like, man, this is really hard to fight this. And then I went through this process of feeling estranged from God. And man, God must be pretty displeased with me. And then I went through this process of wanting to hide from God. I mean, this was all going on in my heart in subtle ways. And then I went through this other process of just feeling, just feeling like super lukewarm. 
and, and beginning to hear things like, this is too hard. You're, you're stuck. You're not going to get out of this. But then I went to men's meeting on Wednesday night. And with those guys, we talked about the Holy Spirit. We talked about the fruit of the Spirit. And I realized that one of those fruits is self-control. And I told the guys I've been struggling with self-control. And we went to prayer. And I said, God, I can't do anything. That's the truth. That's the real rap sheet on this. But you've got self-control in your Holy Spirit. Would you give me some help here? Would you forgive me and give me some help? Oh, my goodness. I haven't told the guys yet. I mean, I, I, I meant to email them. But it was like, you know, a couple hours later, I could just tell. There was a person inside me doing some work. I wasn't bound. I wasn't dragged. Now, I, I appreciate the praise God. I, as I said a few weeks ago, you can put all kinds of things in that place of whatever your struggle is, you know, this week. But, but the fact is, Jesus Christ gives us freedom through the Holy Spirit over our sin. He just does. Galatians 5, Paul says this, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. These are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now, the implication here is not that we're robots, right? I am trusting Christ. I cannot sin. That's, that's not what Paul is talking about. He says, no, the Holy Spirit treats you with dignity as an individual in relationship with him. You can still be led astray by indwelling sin. And there's a, when there's a fork in a road, sin wants you to go over here. The Holy Spirit wants you to go over here. And you still have to make a choice to follow him. But don't miss what Paul is saying here. He says at the very beginning of this passage in 13, you are free. You are free now. Christ has set you free. You are no longer bound to obey and follow your sin. You must believe that, people. That is something he commands you to believe in his word. And Paul says, you have a new leader living in you. And he leads you. He leads you. We, it's mysterious. All of God's kids have different re- aspects of how this works. He doesn't treat every kid exactly the same. And over the course of the next few weeks, we're going to explore different ways the Spirit leads his children. But fundamentally, I want to make clear this morning what Paul is saying. The Holy Spirit leads. Yes, he's invisible. He lives in the deepest part of you. He is united with the deepest part of you. But because he is in you, he is able to lead you. And and Paul gives us an indication of how he does this. Look at verse 17. He talks about the desires of the spirit versus the desires of the flesh. He is talking about desires that exist in you and war in you. The Holy Spirit desires in you. And you sense that. Or else it would be ridiculous for him to talk about a war. You're aware of the desires for the flesh, right? You're aware of the desires to be angry with people and to be selfish towards people. Paul says, you, if you have this Holy Spirit, you're also aware of the desires to love, to be patient, to be kind, to be gentle, to be self-controlled. You're aware of those desires. 
And Paul is saying, Jesus has set you free to follow the lead of the Holy Spirit and his desires. And he is not weaker than your flesh. He is not weaker than the devil. It's not a desire equals desire game plan here. The healthy operation of the Holy Spirit means that you can sense the right road. You have an inclination, a desire to do what is loving. That is him. And he not only gives you that desire, as you keep your hold on what Jesus has done for you, that that Jesus is your righteousness, that even in trying to war with your flesh, you're not earning your salvation. But you're not in the earning business as you keep your heart steadfast on the fact that you're in the receiving business. Not the earning business. God pours more strength into you. God strengthens the Holy Spirit's power in you. So that not only do you want to follow him, as you keep your handle on what Jesus has done for you, you, you can follow him. As you keep your heart on the truth that he says you are free, you find that indeed in your experience, you really are free. So Paul says love Right? And then he says the fruit of the Spirit is love. Paul commands us, love one another. And he says the fruit of the Spirit is love. Which is it? Are we commanded to love or does the Spirit produce love in us? Yes. And this is exactly what you would expect if you have one person, Monty, united in relationship and utterly dependent on another person. Monty doesn't stop being a person. The Holy Spirit doesn't stop being a person. But only one person has the power here. <laughs> right? I remember the first time I flew ever in my life. I was going to see my brother in New York City. It was a miracle to be on a plane. Now, my choice was involved. I made a decision to go to New York City. But my getting there was trusting the pilot's power to get me there. I had no power in myself to get there. I was dependent on the pilot of a 737 that weighed 75 tons and had 2,000 gallons of fuel. I didn't pack that in my bags. But as I relied on the pilot to get me there, by just trusting him and deciding to move forward, trusting that that plane would get me there, I found myself doing the impossible. I was in the sky for hours. So, brothers and sisters... Today, the Holy Spirit calls us to return to the truth that is in Jesus Christ. To, like Dorothy, realize that you've had the slippers all along. That Jesus Christ gives you his Holy Spirit as a gift. And he is available to you today. And he invites you and he invites me. Whether it's the first time in your life this morning. Or whether it's the 4,000th time. To come to him. And I've tried to articulate this in, in a little, my own little attempt at an acronym, ABAF. <laughs> but, but, but just follow me here. This is what I believe God would call us to do. You don't have to do it like this. But these are the principles I believe that are involved. Whether the first time or for the four thousandth time that you're coming to God for his help. You admit that in yourself, apart from Jesus, you're powerless before him. You are a hell-deserving sinner that can earn nothing. That's who you are apart from Christ. When you were saved, it's still true apart from Christ today. 
You believe afresh the beautiful truth that Jesus forgives all your sin, past, present, and future. That he gives you a righteous standing, secure forever before God's throne. And that now he calls you his beloved child. And that he's placed his spirit in your heart to be your very strength. You ask God on the basis of Jesus' worth and his love for you to fan into flame the spirit's life in your heart. To renew the freedom that he's given you over sin and over hopelessness. And because God says in his word, the spirit leads his people. Because he knows how to do that, even if you don't know exactly every moment how he does it. Because God is smart. (laughs) And he knows how to lead you. You ask him and follow his lead as he does lead you through the moments of your day with his desires. The desires that he activates in your heart to live a life of life a life of love for God and others that's what God is calling us to whether it's for the first time today or the 4000th time in our lives as a christian amen amen, amen. let's pray